Well, good morning, folks. I hope you're having a great morning today on this uh, Palm Sunday, the day that we uh, celebrate uh, the triumphant entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem, uh, where the where he'll finish his week uh, on the cross, and then next uh, the following Monday or something, the following Sunday morning is when we uh, experience the uh, uh, the rapture, I mean, not rapture, the resurrection has occurred. So we're excited today and glad you're a part of it. Today we're going to be studying in the book of Isaiah, chapter 42. And as appropriate, it'll be talking about Jesus. Because Isaiah talked more about the, the, there's prophecies in the book of Isaiah that are tremendous. So we're going to go ahead and get started. First thing we're going to do is we're going to have a word of prayer and then we're going to get started on through his word. So let's have prayer right now. Lord, I thank you so much for this opportunity we have that we can come together remotely and study your word. For Lord, your word can reach across the world. We know that that's true. And we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity that we have to help share the gospel by opening your word and seeing what your word has to say. Lord, let it be your words and not my words that may lift someone up today, that may come to know you better because of the reading and teaching of your word for it's in your name we pray amen thank you much for being with us again isaiah chapter 42 we're going to go ahead and read the chapter read the uh, verses one through nine if you have your bibles chapter 42 verses one through nine there's not many verses but then we'll get into it so let's begin <clears throat> behold my servant whom i uphold mine elect in whom my soul delighteth I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgments to the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgments unto truth. He shall not fail, nor be discouraged, till he hath set judgments in the earth, and the isles shall wait for his law. Thus saith God the Lord, he that createth the heavens and stretcheth them out. He that stretcheth forth the earth and that which cometh out of it. He that giveth breath unto the people upon it and the spirit to them that walk therein. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles, to open the blinded eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare, for they spring forth, I tell you of them. So as we looked at the word of God, the first thing we want to do is we want to talk just a little bit about who was this man Isaiah? Um, well, first of all, we know he's a prophet. And a prophet is someone who speaks in the name of the Lord. The true test of the prophet was given by Moses. Moses said, how do you test a prophet? Well, in Deuteronomy 18.22, he said, When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word which the Lord has not spoken. So, so if the Lord prophesizes, the Lord gives a prophet a word, that word will come to pass. That's what Moses said, how you determine a true prophet. Well, Isaiah is the first of four prophets, major prophets. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel in the Hebrew Scripture, all of the Old Testament. 
and uh, Isaiah being the first. The name Isaiah means the Lord is salvation. Uh, he lived during the time of other prophets, the prophets of Amos, Hosea, and Micah. We actually studied about Micah last week. Uh, I, I think it was Micah last week, three weeks ago. Yeah, I think it was last week. Yeah, we, we've been going through the list of minor prophets. Um, Isaiah received his call from God in the Temple of Jerusalem around the 8th century B.C., and that was a turbulent time in history for the Israelites. The kingdom of Israel was united under Kings David and then Solomon, but after Solomon, uh, it was divided during the reign of Solomon's son, Jeroboam, around 922 B.C. You can find this in 1 Kings chapter 12. The northern kingdom, which was comprised of ten tribes, rebelled under Jeroboam, while Judah and Benjamin became the southern kingdom of Judah. So you had the kingdom of Israel in the northern kingdoms, and the southern kingdom became the southern kingdom of Judah. Now the northern kingdom of Israel, they were destroyed by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. You can read this in 2 Kings chapter 17. And they were taken exile to Assyria, where they became assimilated, absorbed, you could say, into the culture, and actually lost their identity. That's why they're often called the ten lost tribes of Israel, because they just they just got dispersed among the crowd. So it became nearly more... And by the way, today as they're regathering the people back, it really becomes difficult to identify the Jews of that ten tribes, because they again are so dispersed. Uh, Israel, by the way, is the known as the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. And God revealed himself to Isaiah as only a few other men have experienced it. You'll see that when you read the book of Isaiah, that God really uh, provides uh, tremendous information to Isaiah. Um, Isaiah was, by the way, a father. He had two sons. And interesting, some little interesting tidbit that as I was going through here, I discovered that uh, one of the passages of Scripture in um, um, in Isaiah chapter 20, verse 1 and 6, God actually ordered Isaiah to walk barefooted and naked for three years to, assemble, to symbolize the trouble that God would bring to the Egyptians and the Ethiopians. Now, does that mean totally nude for three years? I, I don't know the... <laughs> The writers say perhaps it was from the waist up. Um, the uh, the book says that he took off his took off his uh, uh, his coverings. So I don't know. I'm assuming modesty was still part of what he did. I don't think he walked around totally naked, but I think he was definitely not equipped as others, and therefore he suffered because you know they still had wintertime over there too in cold weather. Yet he walked barefooted and with limited amount of clothes for over three years because God told him to. So Isaiah did not have an easy life. You know, a lot of times we as Christians want our life to be easy. We want to do the things that God wants us to do that makes easy for us. But God sometimes asks us to do the hard thing. Here he asks Isaiah to walk barefooted. Don't even put no shoes on your feet and suffer for three years just so he could give an example to the Egyptians and the Ethiopians of what was coming to, for them. I mean, you know, and Isaiah did it. So, uh, you know, that, that, and that's maybe why God was willing to give Isaiah some of the great 
visions and prophecies that he did because Isaiah was a man committed to serving God and to doing whatever God told him to do. You know, Isaiah prophesied during the reign of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah of Judah. That's from 742 to 687 B.C. Uh, Isaiah reminded the people of the need to keep God's covenant. If the Israelites were going to remain God's chosen people, they needed to keep his covenant. But, unfortunately, his ministry fell on deaf ears. During King Hezekiah's reign, which was from 715 to 687 B.C., Isaiah influenced the king, and this brought about some religious reforms and political freedoms. However, moral decay prevailed, and Jerusalem and the temple of the Lord were destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., which led to the Babylonians' exile and the captivity of the Jews. So in that time period, that's when the southern kingdom finally fell and were taken off to Babylon and exile. So Isaiah prophesied, though, in his prophecies, many, many years before this, Isaiah prophesied by name that Cyrus, uh, the great of Persia, this is in Isaiah 44, 28 and 45, 1, he prophesied that Cyrus would conquer Babylon and restore the nation of Israel. And in 538 B.C., Cyrus decided to make a policy that he wanted to have local identity, that, that, that the, these people that they were had in captivity need to go back to their homeland, and instead of him trying to manage that, let them establish their own self-rule uh, and control themselves. And by doing that, you know, it brought the people of Israel back to their homeland of Jerusalem and Judah. And this period was known as the Restoration Period. So we kind of give you the history of Isaiah. Now let's look at the book. Uh, God is named the Holy One of Israel 28 times throughout the book, starting in Isaiah 1 and going through Isaiah 60. Isaiah also calls God the Lord of Hosts from verse chapter 1, 9 to chapter 54, 5. Uh, the book of Isaiah is a collection of poems organized into basically two books. You have the first book of judgments that comes from chapters 1 through 39 and then you have the book of consolations that's from chapter 40 to 66. Some of the key passages in this time was in chapter 5 we see the vineyard song. In chapter 2 we see, I mean chapter 6 we see the call of Isaiah. In chapter 7, we, 7 through 12 we see the prophecies of Emmanuel and God as salvation. In chapters 24 through 27, we see about the apocalypse of Isaiah. Um, we see uh, in chapter 42, the four songs of the servant of the Lord in 42, 49, 50, and 52. In chapter, uh, we see the, the, the call of Isaiah by the Lord describes seraphims, which are some of the highest orders of angels. In Isaiah 9, we see the prophecy of the Messiah and future peace. Uh, Isaiah speaks about salvation 25 times, beginning in chapter 12. He says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord God is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. Uh, a wealth of church teaching is also in Isaiah. Seven gifts of the Holy Spirit are listed in uh, Isaiah 11, verses 2 and 3. 
We see the corporal works of mercy in chapter 58. In chapter 26, verse 19, is one of the earliest references to the afterlife in the Bible. The Lord says, the Lord gives strength in 40, 31. He says, they that hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on eagle wings. How many times will we use that verse? That's a powerful verse. Abraham is called the friend of God in Isaiah 41. The concepts that through Israel salvation will come to all man is expressed in verse 40 in chapter 49. That because of Israel, the nations of the world will see salvation because Jesus will be coming through this organization, this group. And God describes his love to his people in chapter 49. He says, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will never forget you. God has a promise to the nation of Israel that he will not forget them and they will rise again in power. They are already powerful today. America is a strong friend of theirs. We need to maintain that way. There are people, the enemy, Satan is like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour and he is obviously trying his best to attack Israel every way he can. We as Americans need to stand true because God promised us that nations that call them friends, God will bless and nations that attack them, he will curse. America needs to stay strong to that. Even though what we're seeing in Congress sometimes, we got a couple of people in there who are anti-Semitic and are against Israel. And we need to be able to, we need to squash that thought. The Lord comments in Isaiah 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither your ways, my ways. I have to remember that a lot. Isaiah 55, 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither your ways, my ways. God is in control, folks. He is in control. He takes care of things. I can't, I can't understand him, but I can trust him. I've always said this. There's nothing that my God cannot do. Nothing. There's nothing he can't do. The question is, will he? And I don't know the answer to that because I just pray his will be done. I want him to take charge. I want him to do the right thing. Look, Isaiah, as Isaiah walked three years barefoot and naked to serve the will of God, that was not an easy way. God's ways are not an easy way. But he says, our thoughts are not your thoughts, neither your ways, our ways. A recurring theme in Isaiah is a call for justice and righteousness. The word justice refers to the rule of law. And it's about justice. We all want justice. Righteousness, on the other hand, refers to being personally upright with mind of the poor, ensuing distributive justice. Another righteousness is being right with God, and justice is doing what is right in the eyes of God, right? The word justice appears in Isaiah more than any other book of the Bible. So we can say the book of Isaiah is a book on justice, and that's why it does define. Isaiah also includes the term day of the Lord which is a time for judgment, chastisement, punishment, retribution for sin of mankind, justice. See, God demands justice. Sin will be paid for. You either accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and He paid your price for the sin or you pay your price for the sin. Justice demands a sacrifice. I praise the Lord that he gave me the opportunity at 10 years old to accept him as my personal savior. And I still know today that he made a difference in my life. 
because I accepted him. It's not through my goodness or my greatness, but through the greatness of the Holy Spirit that God led me and Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And he can do the same for you. But if you don't accept them, the day of the Lord is coming. Isaiah tells you that. It's about justice. Um, historically, the book itself was found by shepherds in 1947 as part of the, De uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And what this did was it validated all the writing. So some people were saying, well, the book, is, the book of Isaiah was written by three different people. That's how the information was done because there's no way that Isaiah could have said the name of Cyrus a hundred years before he was born. Oh, yeah? I believe my God is mighty. My God, when he gives a prophecy, he can name you by name because God knows you. God knows you by name. He can name you by name. And he wanted people to know for sure when he comes about, this is the one. And he's named him by name. So we see that. Isaiah is the most quoted prophet in the New Testament. The book of Isaiah is second only to Psalms in the number of verses. The book contains two most important prophecies. The virgin birth of the Messiah in chapter 7. And the servant who suffers and dies for our sins in Isaiah chapter 52. Both of these were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And guess what? They are referring to justice. Christ is seen in numerous ways in Isaiah. According to Wilmington's God for the Bible, we see his incarnation, his youth in Nazareth, his relationship with the Father, his miracles, his specific ministry to Gentiles, his gracious ministry to everybody, his suffering and death, his resurrection, ascension, his exaltation, his millennial reign. Isaiah is about Jesus. It tells us a lot about him, of what he will be and what he did. And he fulfilled all of these prophecies. So now, today's lesson will cover the following. It will cover the relationship with the Father. That's in chapter 42, verse 1. It will cover his gracious ministry to all in chapter 42, verse 2 and 3. And it will cover his millennial reign in verses 4 through 7. So, having said all that, all that's introduction, we will begin. So if you look in your Bibles again, verse 1 says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgments to the Gentiles. Well, I like to break down the verses to understand what they say. So the first word would be hold. That means kind of, look at this. This is something else. You'll not want to miss this, is what Isaiah says. Behold, look, my servant. This passage can only apply to the Messiah. Behold my servant. Behold the Messiah. Behold the Son of God. Behold Jesus. This, by the way, this same verse is used in Matthew chapter 12, verse 15 to 21. And listen to what it says. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence, and great multitude followed him. And he healed them all, and charged them that they should make not make him known that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgments to the Gentiles. He shall need he shall not, not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgments unto victory. And in his name shall the Gentiles trust. This was quoted about Jesus in Matthew. So we see the direct link. 
This passage, so my servant referring to Jesus. This passage is only realized through the representative man and head Messiah. This can only be the Messiah. The word servant was the position assumed by the Son of God throughout his entire life and ministry. He referred to himself as servant. Um, so he said, my servant. He says there, uh, again, behold my servant. Let's look at the next phrase. Whom I uphold. Well, I said, let's define the word uphold. To uphold means to confirm or support. Something has been questioned. Something has been questioned. Uphold. Confirm or uphold something. Okay? To confirm something, I said, I cannot either confirm or deny it. You've heard politicians will say that. But this says, to whom I uphold, to whom I'm confirming, to whom I'm supporting. This servant, whom I, God, am supporting. He said, it also talks about maintaining. To confirm, to uphold means to maintain. Not only am I going to confirm him, I'm going to support him. I'm going to be with him. If you uphold something, such as a law or a principle or decision, you support and maintain it. I uphold. Upholding the law means you confirm and support the law. God says his servant is the right one to come. This person here, who's my servant, is the one that I'm going to send. He says he will support him in his servant, in his task. He says he will maintain his purpose in his servant. So he's going to support him. Then he says, mine elect. That means chosen by God before the foundation of the world for an atonement. This servant, behold my servant, mine elect, whom I uphold, mine elect. See, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, 20 says, But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifested in these last times for you. See, this servant God chose from the beginning of time before the foundation was ever laid. God had already chosen Jesus as the Savior. Jesus as the Messiah. My servant. He's with me. He's a part of me. I've already foretold this was going to happen. Redemption was no afterthought, folks, to a remedy of unforeseen. Oh, it's a, a thing we're not supposed to sin. Therefore, we knew it wasn't it happened. Now God had to come up with a plan. God was proactive. He understood mankind. He understood mankind's weakness. And he knew no matter how long that temptation was in the Garden of Eden. We don't know how long before Adam and Eve fell from the time he created them. We don't know that. But we know they did. How long was it? Was it a day, a week, a year, a decade, a century? I can't tell you that. I know they fell. And God knew they would too. And he prepared for their fall. We see... Uh, in uh, Romans chapter 16. Now to him that is a power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began but is now made manifest by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of everlasting God made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. See, God laid the foundation of this before the world ever began. Jesus is a Savior not by accident, but by divine plan, divine purpose. See, God knew us better than we know ourselves. And God always makes a plan for us. 
We see in, in, in Ephesians 3, 9, 11 says, And to make all men see what is the fellowship of mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he proposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, the verse said, Behold my servant whom I upheld, mine elect. See, God had planned this all along. In whom my soul delighteth, I have put my spirit upon him. This came to discussion for me a soul. You know, what is a soul? Does, and the question is, does God have a soul? In whom my soul delighteth, does God have a soul? You know, the soul is defined as spiritual or immaterial, part of a human being regarded as immortal. Is God immortal? Of course he is. Uh, man became a living soul by God breathing into his nostrils the breath of life. We know that because in Genesis 2-7, And the Lord formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostril the breath of life, and man became a living what? Soul. Genesis 1-27 says, And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female created he them. See, God didn't have a physical body walking around, although he could. And although he did in Jesus, and although we know in the Old Testament, there was plenty of times we saw things we call Christophanies, which are appearances of Jesus in the Old Testament. But we know that God breathed, God created man in his own image. In other words, he created him, he gave him a living spiritual soul. And that soul cannot die. That soul will live forever, either in heaven or or in hell. By the way, living in hell, the Bible calls us, is a second death because there's no life if you have if your soul's in hell. The point is, God made us living souls. The Bible tells us God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So perhaps the soul is maybe a holder for man's spirit that God places in every human being that enables him or her to see God and to commune with God. And yes, reject God. It is only through the spirit, the soul, that we can see God and worship him. You understand? We have to worship God, our soul. We give our soul, uh, mind, body, and soul. You know, when people die, their soul departs from their body and it's just a shell left over. There's something about that. That is what communes with God. That is what is part of God. So the Bible says, so therefore, he said, uh, he said, in whom my soul delighteth, my spirit. Um, that being said, the phrase could mean that the soul of the servant, the soul, Jesus the Messiah, would contain this container, this soul within Jesus, would contain the very spirit of God himself. We know that's true. <laughs> we know because John 14, Jesus said, he that hath seen me hath seen the Father. So this soul, this very indwelling, of this person, Jesus Christ, is God. The shell is man, but the being, the soul, is God. He's all God and all man, right? Because his soul is all God. He shall bring forth judgments, he says, to his prop, to, to the Gentiles. Most Gentile governments today are ruled by laws. 
And these laws are based on God's word. We see that. A lot of Ten Commandments, we see the laws of God because of Christianity, because the gospel had to be spread out because of persecution. We see that Christianity and God's word has mingled into the laws across the world. So because of Jesus coming, because of Jesus Christ, because of his, his message to go out into all the world, we see that judgments, things are right and wrong, have been portrayed throughout the world. Even among the Muslim countries, they still follow laws that came out of the Old Testament. For they believe they are children of Abraham also. They are, but they're, from, they're from, not from Isaac. But still, they follow some of the Mosaic laws. And so therefore we see some of the laws that they have are based upon the biblical belief. So we see that because of the, the, the spread of the gospel, that Gentile governors today is a lot of times real. Many laws are being changed, though, due to perversion in our nation. You know, others around the world have start, uh, others around the world but started and were heavily influenced by the spread of the gospel. But we see perversion. So now we're into verse 2. Lot in verse 1, wasn't it? Verse 2, he shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the streets. This is talking about Jesus now. Cry. This word means is a foretelling of the nature of Christ. Our Redeemer. How he will come. Not this time to conquer the kingdoms, but he came to conquer sin and to set us free. Matthew 12, 19 says, he shall not strive, nor cry. Neither shall any man hear his voice in the street, inwardly accepting it in our hearts to do what God has commanded us to do. See, he came differently. He will not come to shout down and criticize the sinners, but their sins. He never abused sinners. He came in contact with them. He loved them and had compassion on them. Now, he criticized the religious crowd because they were leading the people astray and he did not tolerate that sin. But he never criticized those who came to him with sin. He forgave them of their sin and said, go and sin no more. He had passion. He had love. He came, it says, he came, he came. He shall not cry nor lift up nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. Jesus deals with our sin one-on-one. He doesn't go out there and blame you and accuse you of your sins. He does this. He, put, he does not put our sins out for the world to see. We can go to him with our secret sins. And yes, you all have secret sins. We all have sins that we don't want other people to know about. He forgives and forgets so we don't have to reveal it to others, but to him only. The desires of your heart, the sinful desires of your heart, God knows what they are. And God can forgive you for those things. And he won't shout them in the streets. You know, there's a story of, um, there was, I'm not going to give it to you, but there's a story, of, there's a little funny joke about the three preachers in a boat. One was a Methodist preacher, one was a Free Will Baptist preacher, and one was a uh, Pentecostal Holiness preacher. So get your preacher to tell you, that's a funny joke. And if you want to know me, email me, text me, I'll tell it to you, but we're going to go on. The point is, you can trust God not to tell people your sins. Because after you fast forgiveness, he remembers it no more. He has nothing to talk about. We see this leader will be different than all the other leaders. He would not come in pomp and circumstance. He rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday that we celebrate today, riding a donkey and not a chariot. He told Pilate, when Pilate brought him before him, and says, yeah, don't I have, you don't have a power to, 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 to crucify you. And what are you going to say about it? And Jesus said, listen, 
Pilate, you got no power over me. If my if it was if I was to come to conquer, assure you I could beat you. Assure you I have the power. See, Jesus is gonna call legions of angels to come and whoop everybody. And one day he will come back, the glorious king, not the not the savior of the world, but as the king and conquering king. And he will destroy sinners and sin and these kingdoms that rebuke and rebel against God. He will do that during the millennial reign of Christ. But that's not his purpose coming this time. His purpose coming this time, he said, was different. I come for a purpose. His purpose was to come and live a sinless life and die on the cross for our sins so that we can be redeemed. He suffered for our sakes. He submitted himself to the death of the cross for our sins. So we see that. We see that he calls not his voice to be heard in the streets. We see then uh, verse 3. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgments. So let's look at the first part. The bruised reed shall he not break. He cares for the hurting. My Jesus cares for the hurting. We see when he saw the, the crowd gathered at the tomb of Lazarus, and they were weeping, and Jesus had compassion on them, and it says Jesus wept. As we know, the shortest verse in the Bible, all the kids want to memorize, because it's so easy. But Jesus wept because he cared for the hurting people. Even though he was about to raise them from the dead, he could see the pain and heartbreak in their lives, and he wept for them. When he looked over Jerusalem, and he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem! How many times would I have brought you to me like a hen brings her chicks under my wings? And ye would not. Jesus cares for the hurting. The word read, you know, we, reeds, they get bruised. They get twisted in the wind. When, like, heavy winds come, they get broken up. And uh, they could be just, some people go through and just pull them up. But see, Jesus said, the Bible's Jesus, God said that this servant, he won't do that. He won't take the broken and pull them out and throw them away as if they're nothing. He will care for them. This is symbolic of a broken fire, a broken line that has been bruised by the world, a broken life. This is symbolic. The broken life, those of us that live, those of you who are living in a broken life today, God says this servant will come and he will not break you up. He will keep you like you are. He will bring you. He will care about you. He will cry for you. He will, the bruised reed, he will not break. The servant will not come to add hurt to those already hurting. Israel was going to have many in that situation soon because of their sin, but God promised his servant he would not add to their suffering. The smoking flax shall not quench. Lamp wicks were made out of linen. This picture is a lamp that the oil is about to run out of, and the smoke that rises. You know, whenever you have a, a the, whenever the wax is burning out or the wick is burning down, it starts smoking because the wick burns up. When there's no fuel left to it, the wick burns up. Well, he says the smoking flax he will not quench. In other words, he will not he will not put it out. He'll allow it to continue to burn, even if it's smoking. He'll let it burn. He'll let it keep on. So even when we ourselves are rejecting him. He will still give us opportunity. We know in 2 Peter, it says, God is not slack concerning his promise, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, that all come to repentance. See, God, 
this the servant, the Messiah that coming, Jesus Christ, he said, the smoking flax shall he not quench. He will give you the opportunity until your life is over. He says, he shall bring forth judgment unto the truth. This is the promise. The Messiah would not quench the flickering weak light of hope of Israel until he sends forth judgment and the victory. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. See, he said that you can trust what I say is going to be true, no matter what. Even when you think life is impossible, even when you think there's no hope, there's always hope. Because God will sow justice to those who are unjust. His word is true, and you can trust it. Verse 4 says, He shall not fail or be discouraged till he has set judgment in the earth and the isles shall wait for his glory. He shall not fail nor be discouraged. Failure and discouragement were foreign to the Messiah and always will be. Jesus never sees failure. Jesus never fails. Never fails. Nothing. You can see any of his life say, well, he got crucified. That was his plan. He got whipped. He got slapped. That was his plan. Jesus suffered for our sakes. He, his plan was fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled everything of the law, every prophecy. He shall not fail nor be discouraged. Uh, he will have opportunities that said, and trials that will come that will lead that, but he will not be discouraged no matter what suffering he had. You know what? It had to be discouraging to us to see those that he loved, those who were his friends, not understand who he was. Over and over, he said, have I been with you so long? You don't know who I am. <laughs> you know? But yet he was not discouraged because he knew the weakness of man and he knew what he had to do. He shall not be discouraged. It says, till he has set judgment in the earth. This is talking about the millennial reign. See, God will prevail. God's plan is sure. Till he has set judgment in the earth. That will take place during the millennial reign of Christ when Jesus will have his kingdom set up on the throne in the new Jerusalem and he will reign from on high. It says the isles shall wait for his laws. It's going to happen. It will affect everyone, both Jews and Gentiles. Everyone that includes us can wait for the coming of the servant. The isles shall wait for his law. We're today waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. And we're in America today. The isles, talking about you know the, the, the outer parts of the world. We're the isles to them, right? We're all a far sea country. But we see that. We, verse, we go into the second part now. The commission. Verse 5. Thus saith the Lord, He that created the heavens and stretched them out, He has spread forth the earth, and that which cometh out of it. He that giveth breath unto the people upon it, and spirit to them that walk therein. Thus saith the Lord. The Lord is not just the God of Israel, but the God of the whole world. Thus saith the Lord of God. God can claim authority over all creation. He created the heavens. He stretched them out. He spread forth the earth. He created everything that came out of the earth. He gave life to all living creatures. He gave spirit to all mankind. This verse, by the way, could be referring to the servant Jesus. Because he said, if you look at the first part, first part says, Thus saith the Lord. He that created. Now some say he was referring to God the Lord. I think that he could be referring again to the servant because it says he created the heavens. He created the he spread them out. He spread forth the earth and that cometh of it. He that giveth breath unto the people upon it and spirit to them. So let's look at that a little further. 
Jesus was the creator of the world. We know from a Colossians 1, 16, 17 says, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. See, Jesus was the creator. So this verse is perfect for him. Because it says, He hath created the heavens. Yes, check, that's Jesus. Stretch them out. Yep, check, that's Jesus. He has spread for them. Yep, check, Jesus. That which cometh out of it. Check, yep, he did. He giveth breath unto the people. Check, and the spirit of them that walk therein. Check, because if God saves us, we have the Holy Spirit in us, and the spirit of them that walk therein. See, I think this verse refers, that saith God, he, being the servant, will be those things. He will be God himself. We see verse 6, the call of the covenant. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee a covenant of the people for a light of the Gentiles. So we see the first part. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand. The Lord says this servant will be just like him in righteousness. Sure, God will be in with him until the end. John 14, 11 says, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. See, Jesus is God. The servant was, is God. That's what he says. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand. He said, I'm not going to go away from you. You and me are the same. We'll be together always. Second part, and give thee a covenant for the people for a light of the Gentiles. The main thing of this servant is to do is to establish a new covenant between man and God. 1 Timothy 2, 5-6 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. There's one mediator. It's a new covenant. Simeon prophesied when Jesus was born. He said, a, he looked at Jesus and called him a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. See, this was a new covenant. Jesus came to establish a new agreement. This servant was coming to establish the new, indeed, I liked to lighten the Gentiles. Verse 7, to open blind eyes, to bring about the prison, bring out the prisoners from the prison, and to them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. So what does it mean to open blind eyes? This refers to spiritual blindness. The world is blind today, for if they could see what we could see, if they could know what we could know, they would be on their knees today begging God for forgiveness and asking Him to come into their hearts and lives today. That's what they would be doing. They're blinded. But God is here to open the blinded eyes. Only through the truth of God's Word can our eyes be open to the truth of our sins. To bring out prisoners from prison and to them that sit in darkness. The lost sin, the lost sin in prisons today controlled by sin's lies. The lost linger in prison today. The prison is within themselves. I have a website called The Battle is Within because the truth is, how do we fight this darkness? How do we fight this evil? How do we fight this world? We fight it from within us. See, it doesn't matter what the world does to us because God is in control of our lives, our hearts, our souls. So therefore, the battle is within us. And this says this to bring out the prisoners from the prison. To get us out of this trapped sin world into what God wants us to be. And to them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. God can show you the light. The light to lighten the Gentiles. Jesus would come to free them from it. If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. John 8, John 8, 36. 
See, Jesus came to make you free to set you out of the sin of darkness, out of the prison house. Not just free from them, but show the light. But ye have chosen, 1 Peter 2, 9, but ye have chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a particular people, that ye should show forth the praise of him who hath called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. See, this is definitely the Savior. Verse 8, now look the call to glory. I am the Lord, that is my name. And my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven image. Listen to me tell you. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the light. No man comes to the Father but by me. Again, I am the way, the truth, and the light. No one comes to the Father but by me. See, all these others are false religions. There's only one God. There's only one Jesus. There's only one Savior. Everything else is wrong. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're lost. And I pray for you. I'm not criticizing you because I was like you, lost. Needing a Savior. All everyone out there today who are saved, they needed a Savior. We're no better than you. We just know the Lord. You can too. You're no different than we are. The Bible says, I am the Lord. That is my name. God now turns his attention back to the people. He stresses his authority and power to have them understand the prophecy is coming from God and will come about. I am the Lord. This prophecy, this servant that I'm telling you, he is coming. And he said, my glory I will not give to another. Philippians 2, 19, 11 says, There wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 19. And my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to any graven image. This is a reminder that people have no false idols nor anything else will ever have to take the place of God's power. We see in um, Revelations 5, 12-13 saying, saying with all voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessings and every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Only Jesus Christ has the worthy power. Verse 9, the last verse. Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare before they spring forth, I tell you. So he said, listen, the things I prophesied before you before, they've already come about. Have they not? So what I'm telling you now, you can trust it. You can take it to the bank, is what he says. For the things that are coming, are coming. I'm telling you new things, a new covenant, but it's coming. Conclusion. God wanted the nation of Israel and the rest of the world to know the Messiah was coming. He wanted them to know that they did not need to fear him because his coming was not to destroy but to heal and redeem. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. God wants us to know there is coming a day when all the world will bow to his Son, the servant, and we all can trust that God's judgment will be complete and the world will live in peace forevermore. Are you ready for the return of the Lord? He's established a new covenant between God and man and all we have to do is repent of our sins and accept the free gift that God, the Son, to be that number. Are you saved today? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as personal Savior? If you have not, I would ask you right now, today, on this Palm Sunday, while you're in your homes, while you can't get out, take time, bow your heads, ask God, Lord, Almighty God, the Lord who said you are, I pray right now that you would forgive us of our sins. Yes, David Barber, forgive me of my sins. 
Lord, I pray others out there would pray, Lord, forgive us of our sins and our weaknesses. I thank you, Lord, that you don't bruise us like the weed in the, the reed in the wind. And Lord, that you endure with us, that you keep us, you trust us, you love us, you cry for us. I pray, Lord, that you would convince those people who don't know you as their Savior today that, Lord, your Holy Spirit come upon them and draw them to you, that they might ask forgiveness for their sins and your Holy Spirit come inside of them so that they can know you and be right with you and trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. I thank you, Lord, for what you did for us 2,000 years ago, but, Lord, you did for me 50 years ago. I thank you, Lord, for your Son on the cross. I thank you, Lord, for this day. I pray, Lord, where the gospel is preached today and the services that are coming up now, that your will be done and lives be changed forever because we trust in you, the mighty warrior, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you, folks. Appreciate you attending. Uh, we'll look for us next week.